Hello and welcome to Rethink Energy's weekly podcast. Today we're talking about some of the stories from our issue. Uh, we're talking about the the US hydrogen production tax credit. Uh, we're going to talk you through our new report on EVs and some observations uh, about how to think about energy. And then we're going to just chart the growth of polysilicon supply inside and outside China. With me to help me do all that is um, is Harry Morgan, um, our hydrogen and wind analyst, is um, Andres Wontanar, our solar specialist, and Simon Thompson, who does everything else. <laughs> Hello. Okay, so let's um, let's first talk about this hydrogen tax credit, Harry. Uh, uh, where did it come from, and why why don't we get notice of this coming? It, it, you said it's in the Build Back Better bit, bill, but I think it's part of the budget reconciliation, isn't it? Yeah, it's all part of that, really. So it's been it's been a big part of um, I say a big part. It's been quite a very small part of uh, Biden's infra- infrastructure bill, and it's been sort of squirreled away in sort of the subtext. And no one's really known how the hydrogen tax credit is going to sort of work its way through the House and the Senate. I mean, so the news was I think it was about a week ago now that it's got it's gone through the House. Um, it's obviously got to get through the Senate, but we think it's pretty likely to pass. I think the Senate the senators that have been objecting to certain parts of the legislation haven't really focused on hydrogen. I think compromises will probably be made elsewhere. And what we're seeing at the moment is probably sort of going to be the final iteration of what this production tax credit is for hydrogen. So what it is, is a it's a 10 year tax credit project. They're entering construction before 2029 um, or slightly earlier in, in some niche cases worth up to three dollars per kilogram of hydrogen you produce. And that's very similar to the production tax credit for wind. So basically it's it's solely based on the amount you produce and you just get that chunk as a subsidy for what you're producing. Is there a limit to the total amount of money the government can spend? there is it up to a certain amount per annum or is it up to a certain amount in total they haven't outlined how much they expect they've obviously the the figures sort of included within sort of the 1.2 trillion figure but and there's no real specification of how much hydrogen will will be within that uh, not that i've seen anyway um and well, can um, i can i interject actually isn't it if it's in the budget reconciliation that's actually the larger 1.75 trillion one the the build back better it's the infrastructure bill that's 1.2 no, I mean, yeah. So it's it's part of the um, the Build Back Better bill. So mm. it's part. It, that's directly where it's come from. Yeah, the the aim is to have it up and running by next year. So having projects that are entering construction that know that they're going to be having, if they're green hydrogen, three dollars per kilogram off the price. The broader aim of that within the US is to bring the cost of green hydrogen down to two dollars per kilogram by 2026. And if anything, we think that they've sort of slightly overshot this. I think, I mean, obviously it's going to be a great thing for the green hydrogen industry. And I think that's very much a positive. But realistically, $3 per kilogram, based on the prices today, that almost bring, that brings hydrogen down to cost competitive pretty much wherever you sit. And also, by the time a lot of these projects come online, I mean, it's running through to 2029. You'll be making profit from the hydrogen you're creating before you even sell it to your customers. So it's going yeah, to be... Yeah, I, I, I think there's a lot of wisdom in this bill. And I think there's a, some some folly as well. I think one of the, the things that um, we're seeing is that America has has got a split personality over hydrogen. The renewables industry seems to not to not want it and want it to go away because they believe it's going to be hijacked by the oil companies. And an awful lot of, of commentary talks about hydrogen being a waste of time and uh, b- because it's 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 allowing the fossil fuel companies a second bite of the cherry. What that has led to is America is significantly behind on hydrogen. So without something like this, it's going to stay significantly behind. Now, 
the idea that, that it's got this graduated approach that you get a certain price if you've got a um, certain amount of CO2 or under a certain amount of CO2 produced in, in making hydrogen, uh, it's got another price if you've got more. And so what it does is it opens the door to blue hydrogen immediately tomorrow. However, it still gives an edge to green hydrogen. That's great. It might allow America to catch up. The folly part is that if you allow the distribution to be controlled by the oil companies because they have pipelines, because that's what they want to do with it, then by starting it as blue hydrogen, allowing blue hydrogen to play a part in the first few years, and then pricing it out with green, they're, they're, they're now the Sears Roebuck of, of all this. They're the buyer. They're going to go to the green hydrogen companies and screw them and end up buying them and end up still in control, even though they have no responsibility for fugitive emissions in any part of their supply chain. So that's that's a kind of slight concern. But I think if I'm Joe Biden, I say my bigger concern is we're off the pace and this puts us back on it. The other thing is we don't know yet how they're going to be accounting for this carbon. Um, I think the devil really, will really be in the detail. Um, Gunnar Granholm, the US Energy Secretary, is set to make a decision in the next year of how these life safety emissions will be measured. I mean, it's likely that the upstream electricity will be included. So that will mean that it's not going to be possible to run electrolyzers on grid-based electricity. That will mean that it's going to be that the sort of carbon intensity of the hydrogen will be way too high. But the interesting thing will be whether or not these upstream methane emissions are included. Because um, that will re- that firstly that will mean that blue hydrogen just won't fall within any of the the tax brackets, and it also means that even if they can capture some of the carbon there, they yeah they'll only apply for this of thirty three percent of the full tax credit. So it will only knock one dollar per kilogram off, and realistically, that's not going to be enough to bring blue hydrogen down to cost competitive with grey hydrogen, and it's certainly not enough to give blue hydrogen a an unassailable advantage over green hydrogen. I mean, it yeah, might no, that's why I think it's wisdom in it. I think it's. He's, he's saying, look, I haven't shut the oil companies out. I'm not, I'm not closing them down. I'm, you know, I'm giving them a chance. You know, I'm making this a bill for everybody who wants to get involved in hydrogen, however they want to go about it. But you're right, the devil is in the detail. And, and you, if you, I mean, I've seen a graph to this morning as I'm looking into it that says this is the likely emissions if you use grid. And you know, and it's and it takes you outside most of the tax brackets, and the, and the only one at the end, you kind of wonder, well, what about if they use green hydrogen? If they if it's truly green, and you go, oh, there's not actually an entry, it's zero. Yeah. That means you get, oh, well, that's that's the one that wins by quite a significant way. I mean, it is it is there to promote green hydrogen. Most people in America had been convinced that hydrogen was the devil's devil's. Uh, product and it belongs to Exxon Mobil, and and that's not what this government's doing. No, and I mean it is a very American approach, right? I mean it it does signal that we're probably not going to see um, grey hydrogen embroiled within carbon pricing, um, but given sort of the ambition of this tax credit, I don't think that's necessarily going to be an issue. Um, I think that yeah, I think we'll see green hydrogen being sold for lower than grey hydrogen costs, especially given the cost of natural gas at the moment. I think we'll see that next year. Um, I think there'll be some sort of small scale um, electrolyzer projects that are pumped online really quickly and we'll see that out on the market or being sold through offtake agreements. Um, and I think once that's shown, once that's demonstrated within the market and obviously you've got this 10 year period where you can get projects online, I think that means that, yeah, it's within a year or two, everyone's going to be 
sort of lining up to try and get get on board with the green hydrogen project because i mean the money you're going to be getting from the government is going to be so large the realistically the three dollar per kilogram tax credit it will be reviewed i mean the next government will think okay we've actually overcooked this we're going to have to reduce it but in the meantime it's definitely enough of a signal that the market's going to be there i mean obviously that that reduction would only ever happen if the cost of green hydrogen falls as we expect it to so is, is three is three dollars per kilogram enough to make every nuclear plant want to produce hydrogen instead of being on the grid? That's really interesting, actually, because pink hydrogen, which is what we call hydrogen from nuclear, is you can technically branch within the zero emission hydrogen. Generally, it will produce hydrogen sort of around sort of five, six dollars uh, per kilogram. So it's still going to be expensive hydrogen. Oh, okay. um, so it, the problem the, with that is, is you're going to have to produce it somewhere near the nuclear plant and that means building a, a hydrogen project near the nuclear plant and that means making an investment which should be a 25-year investment if you want to get your money back and given that most of the um, nuclear plants have got cut-off dates prior to 25 years and they've got a, a, a an nrc security review uh, before they can extend their lives which often involves spending another billion dollars to make make the nuclear plant yeah, it, it's not going to come up very often i don't think it might well come up but i don't think it's going to come up that often mm. not enough to twist the whole market because nuclear plants need a water source already so at least that is secured yeah, no, yeah definitely. i think people forget that the cost of water is also something that affects will affect hydrogen and i think there will be i mean certainly over the next in the long term i think the, the availability of water to these projects will become an issue and i think that's why we're seeing so many electrolyzer companies starting to focus on salt water electrolysis so I think that's going to be a really interesting dynamic going forward. I mean, that's a separate, obviously a separate discussion to the, the tax credit discussion, but the hydrogen market is going to be one of the busiest emerging markets that, that's going to exist over the next 20 years. So um, it's going to be a very interesting one to watch. Who's going to copy this, do you think? Yeah, interesting. I mean, we've not really seen production tax credits in that sense it, around the rest of the world. It's been much more of sort of a sort of a feed-in tariff or a, a contract for different sort of uh, thing with, from renewables projects. I think I think in Europe we probably will see a contract for difference mechanism to hydrogen. I think that's more of how it'll work. I think there'll be things like carbon contracts for difference involved within that. So uh, I think it's going to be interesting. Uh, I don't think that that the Europe will follow the production tax credit route. But I don't think the US were ever going to consider following sort of the European approach. Yeah. So um, I think the, the fact that the US has implemented a scheme, I think, just means that there will be more schemes or more similar schemes announced in the next year or so. Because we, we don't, I mean, Europe won't want suddenly developers flood, uh, flooding to uh, flooding to US for all of their projects. So I think yeah, the Europe will, within the next year, we'll see very similar schemes announced from Europe, from Japan, from Korea, probably from Australia as well. Peter, we really think energy uh, subscribers have had a new forecast delivered by the time of uh, by, by the time they'll be listening to this. It's called Tesla versus Exxon Mobil. Who's right? Uh, and it's a forecast about EVs for the next 30 years. Explain more about that. OK, so it's, um, it's, it's yeah, it's a 30 year forecast on EVs and e-mobility, obviously the charging frameworks. With dramatic, with the implications for the oil industry, also for investors both in the oil industry and in the renewables industry, I think it's it's fairly straightforward. Something happened in second and third quarter of this year. Everybody, everybody's excuse for why people weren't selling cars 
um, just went out the window. Everyone's idea that, oh, in 2050, we'll still have 30% of the world's oil being used or 60% of the world's oil being used. That Those type of statements became impossible as soon as uh, Q2 and Q3 deliveries of EVs happened. When when people jumped in Europe from, from 10, 12, 13%, up to 24% of all new cars being EVs. When, um, when America suddenly jumped from um, 2% so up to, to the kind of 6% area. And what we're finding is that's happening all over the world. And the, you know, the number of EVs sold is doubling from one year to the next, more than doubling, and each quarter it's accelerating. So the rules that we've always suggested for consumer markets are these. I want one, I can afford one, I know someone who's got one. Well, it only comes true that you can afford one once there's a subsidy. There's going to be a subsidy in America, there is one in China, it's continuing, there are subsidies all over Europe. As soon as you know someone that's got got one, you say, what are these Teslas like? And someone says, oh, it's the best car I've ever had. You're you're just getting that um, promotional platform and the acceleration, the uptake is is there. All we've done in this forecast is take the five and a half to six and a half percent increase in the number of new cars that are EVs and assumed it for each year. That's that's all we've done. And what we've seen is that we'll be on one point, uh, well over 1.6 billion cars will be EVs uh, in 2050 in a world that's only a little over 1.7 billion cars, passenger cars. The whole thing's been done on consumer purchase uh, habits, so it's passenger cars. Obviously, trucks, buses, uh, commercial vehicles will also uh, move along that path. But what this does show us is the rate at which oil will cease to be used to drive vehicles. Uh, Yes, for a while, uh, there are small increases uh, bringing us out of the, the pandemic in oil usage, but it never regains the 2019 numbers ever. That was peak oil. When it starts to drop, it starts dropping by 5% per annum. A couple of years into that, it's obvious that the oil companies have nowhere to go. The price will start plummeting. And we saw in the pandemic how quickly the price fell when the amount we used was only 8 or 9% less. And suddenly, we're going to see us in the same commercial position. And you'll be able to see that as an investor around 2027. It'll become completely obvious. It's obvious to us now, having done this work, but it'll be obvious to everyone in the planet around 2027. In fact, the story we, we ran this week, we haven't actually talked about the report. We've really only talked about the electricity forecast that we, we had in Look Back in Anger report. Uh, and we've now extended that out to... Um, to 2050 and beyond. And um, we, we was really stimulated, this article was really stimulated by seeing someone putting in global primary energy into a chart and me thinking, well, that's a bit disingenuous. You know, the primary energy is, is, is a non-existent concept. Hydro, water doesn't have any primary energy. The sun doesn't have any primary energy. Wind doesn't. But they're going to rule the future of the electricity industry. So everything needs to be done in megawatt hours. And that's exactly what all I did, was restate that graph in megawatt hours and give a little bit of reference to the work we've done on this report. So we can uh, jump into your story, Andres, on polysilicon and the rate at which it's definitely due to increase is gone off the charts. 
I mean, I'll start with the announced polysilicon expansions by all these companies, most of which are in China. I haven't really looked too much at the Western ones because I don't think they're building much more. Or really, there's India, but mostly it's just China. And those manufacturers have announced capabilities of three million tons by 2024, which would mean 1000 gigawatts of silicon photovoltaics if you ran them all at 100% capacity, which which wouldn't happen. But uh, I don't think 3 million tons is going to happen. I think it will be 1.5 million tons or a bit over that by 2024. Uh, but even that is triple manufacturing capacity that we had in 2020. So it's going up very, very rapidly. And really, it's because the supply chain um, development is just so out of whack. I mean, there's this sort of cyclical issue, which is the the polysilicon plants take so much longer to build, really two years to to ramp up and build, which is far longer than the the downstream seller module stuff. So so where were we in 2020? How how much was deployed, uh, solar was deployed in terms of uh, capacity globally? The the global capacity was 545,000. So China was actually, oh, wow, it was actually, no, I'm wrong, 480,000. So a, a third of what I expect to happen in a few years. That was 2021 in China, but the world was um, 550,000 in 2020. So we're actually... I mean, giga, gigawatts of capacity of solar. Sorry, tons of polysilicon. No, no, I, I asked a question about gigawatts of, of, of capacity of solar. Oh, did you? Okay. Um, sorry. What? Well, how much was in 2020? By my figures, it was 146 and a half uh, gigawatts. That's 2021 broadcast, wasn't it? No, that that's my figures for 2020. Oh, okay. And and, in, and and we're going to see. So we're going to have three times as much polysilicon available within four years. Hmm. And so, I think so. At the same ratio, you you could ex- easily expect that to be 300, 400 gigawatts of solar deployable four years from now. Quite astonishing. I think it won't quite be that much because there is always the capacity factor. So especially this year, of course, the polysilicon capacity factor is going to be running very high at probably 80% output. And then Uh, then the new stuff, it will be lower hmm. right away, but still doubling by 2024. Yeah, so the the capacity, yeah, doubling by 2024. And and by Hmm. 2030, it's going to double again. I actually don't think so. I think it will increase a lot, but I think, uh, at least as far as the polysilicon is concerned, once, once you get to 2024, no, because the there's is, so much... You, this is what you said in the article. You said 800 gigawatts annually. Yeah. If the plants run at 80% capacity, Yeah. if it goes to 3,000 tonnes, which means we're going to have 800 gigawatts annually. You think 20, so by 2030? Well, that's no, you think so, because that's what it says in your article. In fact, published claims of future manufacturing expansions up to 3 million, but everything would have to go right worldwide in solar development to reach that scale before 2030 of 800 gigawatts annually. Yeah, so so, so I, I, I then said I don't think that's going to happen in practice. Uh, okay, but what I'm, I'm, I'm saying is it links back to that hmm. graph. If we go back to that graph on the primary energy story and we look at the amount of – well, one of the things that um, Rystad did on that graph was assume that solar – it's going to be almost twice wind. Now, we, we've never really had a position on that. We just we lump solar and wind together as, as intermittent renewable energy most of the time. But if they're right, it's certainly going to need that kind of hike. And that, that they could be right, basically, with this amount of polysilicon. That is the whole point I was making. Um, 
I just think that once you start getting up to 800 gigawatts of attempted policy, uh, solar deployment in 2030, I, I think you would run into just transmission line issues and that kind of thing. The rest of the supply chain would be struggling. Well, it all depends because I mean, if you if you do the Seams development in America within ten years, you have east-west connections, hmm. and you do the same in China, and you have north-south connections and and, and east-west, and you you do the same in India, you get to grips with their chronic um, grid problem, but then you've got the capacity, you, you you can start to use it, and also. I think one of the things we're missing on the grid is if you're doing electric vehicles, you don't power them from the grid. Why would you do that? You've got to pay a wholesale price for that. You you have a PPA and you have someone build, put solar panels in the field next door and you run that through to a battery uh, for overnight storage and you can recharge from that all day, 24-7. So I, I don't see that as really being grid connected or grid constrained. It'd be local. And I, th- I think we are talking about doing that on steel production. We're talking about doing that on electric vehicles. We're talking about doing that on cement and in other industrial processes. So I think we're seeing, yeah, yeah, solar could still be a massive driver and not be grid constrained. Mm. But probably by then, maybe a quarter of it or more will be perovskites. So you wouldn't need all of this 800 to come from silicon. And, well, that, uh, that leads us a real question, though, because if the 800 ever gets built, built, if 800 gigawatts is ever is the peak or is close to the peak of solar, then if you add perovskites to that, you're going to be looking to deploy at a much higher level than that. And that's ludicrously high. Hmm. I mean, one of the issues is overbuilding. And I, and I keep coming back to this as something that we need to solve in our model, which is if there's too much solar, the price goes down and down and down. Someone eventually buys it, they install it. If there's too much energy, um, there's no predictable way of making profit. The profit shared out across too many suppliers to make us a, a good return on investment. So is that the way the market's going to go? We're going to build out twice as much solar as we need and spread it around the world. And they're going to compete aggressively for their share of the profits. Or is it going to be self-limiting and that the investment return isn't high enough so that it, it's, it settles down below that 800 gigawatt level, at maybe 400, 500? Because yeah, certainly what I expect and what I draw in, in, in the graph in this article is that right now everyone wants to have a polysilicon plant because the price is $40 instead of $10, uh, the, which is the price it was at in like 2019. So everyone is building one. As they start to come online in 2024, personally, I think they'll all they'll all go, you know, they'll all have a very low price and then they'll be quite sad again. And I think that will stall things. But you, you're saying it won't happen because there's just going to be more and more demand. I'm not and it saying just, that. I'm asking, mm. I'm asking that more as a question. I think we need to we need to have a built into our model an understanding of how much. I mean, at the same time, wind is going at its own speed. It's going a bit too slow. It's permit constrained it's 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 ramping up but it it, it doesn't seem to be it can get access to money anytime it gets sign off for a project but it doesn't seem to be ramping up quite as rapidly as, uh, as solar so is solar going to um capture people's imagination as something that, that entrepreneurs can get their heads into 
much more quickly. What do you think about the the global economy for the next decade? Because that is quite relevant for this kind of question. Will it still be in doldrums with lockdowns or COVID variants or whatever, or or will it be, you know, roaring through the gates? After every um, uh, global crisis, Hmm. there's a a four or five year uh, period of of growth and just energy, uh, which normally ends in some kind of hyperinflation event (laughs) and a global crash. Wonderful. Um, you know, eight or ten years later. So, so I, I, I'm not a student. I'm not an economist. I'm not a student of uh, the past in detail. That's my impression. Um, I think we should get an economist on our webinar and ask him uh, what he thinks would happen if if, if uh, uh, this happens. But I mean, I do feel that the amounts of money that can, can be, you know, the whole the whole global trillions and trillions of dollars are spent on petroleum every year. It's going away. So something's got to replace it. Hmm. Solar and wind are at the heart of that. Batteries is, is is perhaps the common denominator. And at some point, that's that that's such an investment game. We'll get to the point where we're blasé about it. Yeah, yeah, put more money in the solar. Yeah, it's always always gives me a great return. And then it will stop giving you a return because there'll be too much of it. So nobody sees the wall coming uh, because they get into a habit. Uh, and habit investment is bad investment. So, yeah, I, 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 but I can't see the, the car industry collapse. Well, the car industry is not going to collapse. It's generally just going to go from strength to strength. Um, the, the car has been reinvented. The oil industry is going to collapse. And I can't see that affecting the global stock market because it's already in their price. Nobody thinks much of the oil companies. Nobody's got a high value. They still generate loads and loads of cash for a little while longer. Then they go kaput. It's in the price. So, so I, don't, I don't see that bringing down the the uh, stock markets. Hmm. Overinvestment in solar is more likely, I think, to cause that. 